0: Hello and welcome to Who Runs That, I'm Seth Stevenson. Today on the show, we'll be talking about Coffee Meets Bagel, an online dating service that endeavors to connect people looking for love. Joining us is CEO Dawoon Kang, who co-founded the company along with her two sisters. In our conversation, Dawoon Kang talks about turning down Mark Cuban when he made a $30 million offer to buy her company, about the secret to creating a successful online dating profile, and about the ups and downs of co-founding a startup with your siblings. After the break, Dawoon Kang, co founder and CEO of Coffee Meets Bagel. Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today we'll be talking about the online dating service Coffee Meets Bagel. And with us is Dawoon Kang, uh, who is co CEO and co founder of Coffee Meets Bagel. Dawoon, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Seth.
0: So, for people who don't know, what is Coffee Meets Bagel?
1: Yeah, Coffee Meets Bagel is a dating service really focused on creating real connections. And so, the way the service works is every day at noon we curate you limited amount of potential matches, which we call bagels, and um, they are selected by our algorithm, which takes into consideration many many factors. Um, and you, if you connect, you can chat and go on a date.
0: What are the origins of Coffee Meets Bagel? How did this all get started?
1: Yeah, so you know, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My two sisters and I uh, grew up watching my dad and my mom uh, building their own companies. My dad started his own uh, company. It's a recycling metal business in Korea with his brother right out of college, so he's never really worked for anyone else in his life. And just saw him putting so much passion into building this business and We all kind of figured that the greatest way to build our our own legacy uh, when we grow up was to start something um, from scratch and uh, something that really can impact uh, lives of millions of people in a really positive way. So we kind of always had that in the back of our mind, um, kind of went off and did our own thing, worked for really, really big companies. Then about seven years ago, uh, we felt like we were ready to kind of take the plunge into the startup world looked for a bunch of different ideas, and dating just kept coming up. Uh, We were in our 20s, and a lot of our our friends, and including us, were kind of too busy to meet meet new people or spend time or dedicate our time to meeting new people because we're so focused on our work and friends and ourselves um, and family. So then uh, we started looking into this industry and found very interesting insights, um, which is that this industry has always had suffered from uh, imbalance in the gender ratio among the dating app participants. So there are a lot more guys than women who actually sign up for dating service. The ratio is about 64 to 36. And um, on top of that, guys are twice as more active when it comes to dating app. And so on any given day, the ratio could be as lopsided as 80 to 20. And so what that does is it it creates um, very, uh, you know, a certain behavior like so guys get frustrated because they're not hearing back so they start you know sending some very uh provocative messages and then women get frustrated because they're overwhelmed and get turned off by the messages that they receive and so the visual cycle continues and so we said hey you know there's an opportunity for here for us to actually create a dating experience that works for both genders um at least in the straight community and that is to actually create a product experience and brand that really speak to women. Uh, what do women care about quality and safety and that's kind of what we focused on from the from the very beginning um, of our origin
0: where, where did you get your first funding from was it friends and family did you go out to any venture capital firms how did you get money to do this at first
1: luckily I was a I worked in the investment bank before um, starting coffee Meets Bagel, so I had a good amount of saving um, that I could just tap into and you know I think this is one of the things that really scare a lot of uh, people who are, you know, thinking about uh, taking that leap of faith for the first time. Oh, what if like, it doesn't go anywhere? You know, what is it going to mean for me? And so um, I think it's very important that you kind of limit what you're willing to lose if in case it goes uh, doesn't really doesn't go anywhere. Um, And so I kind of just put down whatever amount that I felt comfortable. Um, And then I think I actually my dad also helped out a bit.
0: And, and then it's, at a certain point, did you turn to, to VC uh, for for funding? and Did you go out and try to solicit? Yeah, and
1: yeah, certainly. So, we, you know, we are a marketplace business, which means um, there is like a supply and demand. There's like, you know, you, unless you actually have a sizable user base, it's hard for your product to be, you know, in a good quality state where it's serviceable. And so you you need a minimum amount of user base, uh, which means you kind of need funding in order to kind of sustain yourself until you get to that inflection point. So for us, uh, we knew that we were, we had to raise, and um, after we did the MVP, we we did a beta launch um, a few months later when we actually built out some some more scalable um, thing, and then a few months later, I think it was uh, three months after we kind of launched we started seeing some good amount of traction. I mean, we were so small, very small, only a couple thousand people. Um, and that's when we started to, uh, that's when we decided to raise. And our first investor was Light Bank, which is a fund out of Chicago. And um, they're really great. Uh, it's, a, it's a fund started by two partners who were the founders of Groupon and a series of other public companies. So really great operators. Um, and yeah, that's how we, we got our first funding.
0: Some other um, female CEOs I've talked to have talked about how maybe it's a little more challenging to go out and raise funds as a woman. Here you are, three sisters, three women as co-founders of this company. Did you experience that? Did you have any trouble um, raising money for this?
1: Um, Yeah, you know, I think fundraising is a challenge for every entrepreneur, um, with an exception of a very few, whether men or women. And so... I certainly had my own challenges. You know, I think it's one of those things that make you really immune to rejection um, because you're, you experience a lot of it. You know, particularly on gender dynamic, I can't say for sure, I guess, because I was never in the other, <laughs> I never fundraised as a man, uh, you know, what that experience would have been like if I were uh, a man. But I know that it has, it's empirically and so factually correct that men and women are typically treated differently um, in, I mean, a lot of circumstances, but particularly in fundraising. Um, There has been a study done by Harvard Business School observing the type of questions that female and male entrepreneurs get asked. And male entrepreneurs typically get asked a lot about like possibilities and potential, like what's the upside, what is the market size, whereas a lot of women female entrepreneurs what they observed is that they get asked a lot of downside protection questions like what is the breaking even point how are you going to get to profitability and the way the vc uh model works is that they have to find unicorns right they have to bet on unicorns that, which actually ends up funding like hundreds of other companies that they invested that didn't really go anywhere and so if you are asked that type of questions, like one is about possibilities and potentials and the other is about downside and risk, I mean, you're going to get a lot of different, very different answers. Um, and of course, the uh, likelihood that um, you end up with a story that kind of feels like that you're going to end up with a unicorn is, all, is going to be all about possibilities and potentials. So I think those are, those are very known facts. Um, that I didn't really knew going in. But looking back, I I kind of agree that that's kind of, those were the type of questions that I I, I was often frequently asked.
0: So back in 2015, you went on Shark Tank, the network Mm -hmm. television show where people pitch businesses. And Mark Cuban, one of the celebrities on there, the the celebrity entrepreneur, offered you $30 million to buy your entire company. So yeah. I I'm wondering if you can explain to people because almost no one has had this experience. What's it like to make a massive decision like that in front of television cameras in with a, like a really compressed time limit on 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 choosing what you're going to do? How did that feel?
1: <laughs> you know Shark Tank is a whole. It was it was such a memorable experience. It was really nerve wracking and it was also super fun. Um, and uh, you know getting asked by Mark Cuban, I mean, it was such a great validation of all the work that we've had put in up until that point um, for, uh, as a team, for him to benchmark us at, us at $30 million. Um, and, and people do ask like, oh, was it hard and whatnot? Uh, it, was, it really wasn't hard at all. And uh, I don't think it would have been different whether it was on television or not. Like we didn't go there to sell our company and, um, we we knew that this was a market with a huge potential and we were just scratching the surface of it and um you know we we had a model and strategy and hypothesis that really we believe that is going to get us to as big as match.com or bigger and so uh, there was no no kind of like even a sliver in our mind that we should say yes
0: so you said so you said no was there a number he could have named that you would have said right there on television okay you've got you bought the company
1: <laughs> I'm not sure
0: <laughs> And and what was the upshot so were you has it, have you been proven correct to value your company at more than 30 million dollars do you have any regrets about that decision
1: No I mean it, like we definitely have fundraised very successfully after that at a much higher valuation Um, And the journey here up until here has been, I mean, so fun. And, you know, I I have to say, is it always, there are ups and downs, right? Um, There are some times that are more challenging than others. Um, But, you know, given what I see, how the industry has evolved, the dating industry has evolved in the last couple of years, like I've never actually had so much more conviction on um, the value proposition that we offer, the real connections that really inspire personal growth. Um, I don't think there has been any other times when this actually has been more compelling um, for singles uh, in this industry.
0: So you've been around for uh, several years now, but I feel like new dating apps are popping up all the time and Facebook is getting into the online dating game. Is it a crowded marketplace? Is it, and are people concerned about the impact of you know, like a behemoth like Facebook is going to have on it?
1: Yeah, yeah, it definitely is no doubt a very crowded market, but it you know it's actually always has been. Um, It just never was. Even when we actually decided to enter the market, it wasn't like there was a shortage of any dating apps. And so I think in that sense, things just actually haven't changed. Um, I think Facebook entering uh, the space is very interesting development. I don't think we've actually ever had a player as large as Facebook actually entering the market. Uh, And so I was surprised when I heard this and. You know, when I think about it, it actually, really makes make sense. One, I mean, the market is just growing so much. If you look at Match, um, uh, which is a which is a public company and spun out of IAC, uh, you know, three four years ago, uh, their market cap actually has doubled since then, um, and is still growing. Um, they actually had an earnings announcement. I mean, it's so you can I can see why. Like, it's, it's for for a player as large as Facebook to actually enter the market, you can kind of get a sense for. The opportunity and market potential, right? Um, and also, dating app is a is a service where engagement is really, really high. Like the motivation to actually engage with the app is really high. So again, um, I can see why this could be a, a like a reason why Facebook actually entered the market.
0: So I think there's this this fascination with with algorithms and the idea that an algorithm is going to find the you know the perfect partner for you. <laughs> so tell us about your algorithm? Where, where does it come from? How did you develop it? What kinds of things does it weigh more heavily and what kinds of things is, is less concerned about?
1: Well, so our algorithm is kind of like a, this, one of those funny things where I talk about it a lot as, uh, because it's what provides our main value proposition, the, the high quality limited curation. But at the same time, I can't really talk about it a lot because it's proprietary and it's kind of like our secret sauce. And so but what I can share is that we do have a team of data scientists who basically work on and experiment on our algorithm on a daily basis. And in any given time, we have multiple set of algorithm actually running for different regions. And so, um, you know, what the, the algorithm that's curating your matches may be very different from algorithm that I'm getting in here in San Francisco. It's, it's a hard problem to solve, right? It's, you know, how do we actually predict The chemistry that people are going to have, Um, and so it's. uh, I don't think. I don't know if there's ever going to be time when our work is going to be done because it is a very hard problem to solve.
0: And so you're always you're you're taking data from the way people behave uh, on coffee meets bagel, and I guess reincorporating that into the algorithm. So tell us about some of the discoveries you make in in analyzing the way people behave? Is there a certain time of day people are going to be more likely or day of the week? Or is there anything else in that data about how people behave that's really surprised you?
1: Yeah, one thing that really surprised me is how I think a lot of times what we think we want isn't actually what we want. Um, and I know this because, you know, if you sign up for CMB, you're able to specify certain preferences that you you want. So some people where, you know, some cultural or religious background is really important in their partner selection, they would specify that. Um, or, uh, you know, you could also specify some certain people by your age preference. Some people are more looking for at the time, and this obviously changes, um, could change for individuals. They want somebody near your age or they don't really care about age. Like So all those preferences you could specify. And um, we curate, there are two different sections on our app. So there is a suggested section where we really literally curate um, based on everything you say that you want. And so we honor all your preferences. And um, on top of that, kind of add what we know, we think is important for you and, um, Also, of course, like the person, uh, your your potential match. We have a separate section called discover where we actually kind of broaden that parameter a little bit. So we do show some people who may not fit your criteria perfectly, but someone who we we think could be potentially good for you. And what we find is that a lot of people actually end up liking and connecting with people that are outside of their preference that they said are important to them. Um, which kind of tells us, like, sometimes we 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 think um, we own one certain type of people, but then, you know, when we actually meet, it could be very different.
0: Have you learned anything about the kinds of people who get the most interest on your app or the kinds of profiles that get the, the most interest and attention and the, and the kinds of people that seem to get left behind or seem to be less appealing to your users?
1: Yeah, yeah, so... Uh, we actually call our brand lovers peak seekers, P-E-A-K seekers. And it's because um, a lot of our brand lovers, like people who love and are getting really, really great results out of it, are the type of people who really want to grow, and they're looking for something really of substance and meaning. Uh, and so um, they tend to write a little bit more on their profile. They take the time to actually like... Uh, create a profile that really represents um, accurately who they are and what they're looking for. Um, And so if you're that type of person, you would have a lot more success on CMB. We actually looked at, I gave a TED talk on this at one point. We actually looked at, you know, the difference in profile and user behavior of um, CMB users who actually found someone through um, CMB, which now we have quite a number of them. And the CMB users who are still using the app, so which means they're still single and kind of try to figure out like, what is the difference between the two? Are they engaging longer and whatever, whatever. And really the only difference that we saw was that um, their length of their profile was longer. Um, and there was a st- statistically significant difference. There wasn't any really difference that we saw about the profile like background itself. Like it's not like they went to Colleges more or it's not like they had certain jobs. It really just came down to the profile length and also how much they actually engage in, in the chat.
0: Are there certain days of the week or times of day or parts of the year that people are more likely to, to go start looking through online dating apps?
1: Yeah. So beginning of the year um, up until Valentine's Day. So it's January. And so now kind of it's coming down is where when online dating um peaks because a lot of people, you know, it's January, it's New Year's, and like, okay, so my New Year's resolution is to find somebody meaningful or get in a relationship. So kind of people are in that mindset. So that's why online dating usage actually peaks in January. Um, In fact, on January 6th, I think was this year, the first Sunday of January was when we actually saw the most number of activity, which was fun to see, and most number of like, we had a record level um, chat exchanges made by our users. Um, And then in general, Evenings are the times when people are the most active because they're at home. That's when kind of they are unwinding and more free, to like mentally to engage. Um, And then also the weekends, so Saturdays and Sundays.
0: Do you think being a female-run company gives you any sort of different outlook on how a dating app should work?
1: Um, I'm sure. I mean, the thing about dating and relationship is that it's a very... um, the behavior and the way we think, it, it is very different, I think, for per your gender and also by your sexual preference. Um, and so I think what you, by default, like what you end up focusing on can be very different. And um, I think because I am a I am a woman, it's easier for me to empathize um, with our female users and easier to kind of see their needs, which ha- comes very handy because, like I mentioned, because of the dynamic of the dating apps where there are a lot more men than women, it's very, very important that you're able to provide an experience that speak that works for a woman.
0: So, one news report I've seen recently is that there there are lots of bots on online dating services, lots of fake profiles. I don't even understand... Why or why there would be fake profiles or what the bot would be trying to do is that is this the case? Can you explain a little bit about what what's going on there?
1: Yeah, so typically where a bot comes in is it's it's a lot of people who are trying to scam the users to like okay match and then they they try to get you off the app and so that they can ask for certain things typically money, uh, which is really really sad and I, I just. It exists everywhere, but I think it makes me particularly sad, you know, when it have, exists in dating app because you're basically using people's emotion and love as, an, as, as a way to really take advantage of people. Um, it's, it's absolutely like a horrible behavior. And it's something that we, you know, as we scale, like we have to continue to be vigilant about it's, you know, scammer is kind of like a cat and mouse game where you do something to block them out and then they do something. So it's a continuous process. And so, you know, we have certain mechanisms in place, like the ones that I mentioned earlier to be able to combat that. Um, But it's a battle that we need to continue fighting.
0: One criticism I've seen of of online dating companies is that the motivation isn't to get people partnered up and off the app. The the motivation is to keep people coming back and engaging with the app and continuing to search out people. How do you address that sort of fundamental motivation issue?
1: Yeah, I actually absolutely disagree with that. And that's not how I run CMB and how our team thinks. It actually takes a pretty long time for an average user to be able to find someone really meaningful to the point where they actually wanna get off the app. And so if you, if you actually provide really great experience such that they're, they're coming across profiles that they really like and they're chatting and they're going on different dates, they're engaging with you and they're the biggest ambassador for your product and they're spending also a lot of money on your platform. So if you kind of starve them thinking that, like, oh, they're not going to engage as much if they actually go on dates and meet a ton of people and whatnot, I, I think that's a really uh, not a very smart approach. Um, you want to give them as the best experience as possible. And, you know, if we can actually get to the point where somebody comes on an app and we're so freaking amazing that they actually have to get off the next day because they've just found somebody so meaningful right away, I think that would be an amazing problem. At that point, we could probably charge whatever we want to charge for that service and everybody would be willing to pay for it. And so we want to get there. I think that would be an amazing problem to have.
0: Okay, we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be back right after this with more from Dawoon Kang, co-founder and CEO of Coffee Meets Bagel. Okay, I'm I'm gonna get a little bit big picture philosophical here. So I have this theory that online dating is is a huge societal change that we haven't really wrapped our heads around yet because mm-hmm. it used to be that in the vast majority of situations you would meet people in person before the situation would turn romantic and you would get to sort of see how they interacted with other people and and how they handled themselves in social situations. And now increasingly, more and more, we meet people in the, in the ether first. We interact with them online before we've ever seen them in person and then we meet in the real world after we've already decided. Okay, we're going to go on a date. So I'm just wondering if you, as someone who runs one of these services, have any thoughts about whether that is a big shift, and 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 if so, how that maybe has changed courtship and romance.
1: Um, I'm. it, it is a big shift in that online dating, which used to be a very niche thing, has become so ubiquitous. So people have become like a lot more. Like, meeting somebody online before you actually meet offline has become, like, just become a normal thing. It's become normalized. But it's at the same time not really a foreign behavior. Like, if you think about it, like, the way a ton of people used to meet um, their partner through their friends. Like, uh, you know, friend introducing. And so, in a way, online dating just basically technology has replaced that because there is a lot of friction when it comes to, like, human trying having to match somebody. Um, and so you could almost think of it as somebody introducing you, but instead of it's, it, it, it being human, it's an algorithm. So I think in that way, the concept isn't actually entirely uh, new. It's In fact, it's been around for you know probably the dawn of time, since the dawn of time. So it, I don't think it's that revolutionary in a sense. I think what it actually has done is it has significantly widened the uh, the pool of your network. Like, so for example, I mean, it's kind of crazy in the 19... I I read something like in the 1930s, they did a study on 200 married couples in Philadelphia, and they found that like 70% of the married couples actually lived within five mile radius of each other before meeting. So like that physical proximity was really, really important determinant of your future partner, which is kind of crazy. But now because of technology, because of online dating, you could actually meet somebody really, really far away who's totally outside of our social circle and uh, be able to connect with them. You would have really never met them unless you actually like, uh, unless for online dating. So I think that's something really beautiful actually. Um, And uh, that change I think is pretty big.
0: Yeah, I mean, and you can even look at it like a technology like the bicycle where suddenly instead of just meeting people in your village, you can maybe meet someone two villages over that, wi- that widens your pool. And now online dating, it's you know exponentially more people. It widens your pool so much more.
1: Yeah, and I think I read somewhere recently a study published by um, saying that online dating actually has significantly increased intercultural, interracial marriage. And I think it's for that reason, because now people have access to... Um, like their pool of people who I, they could actually meet from has increased significantly.
0: How quickly do most people on Coffee Meets Bagel move from talking to each other within the app, texting each other, to actually meeting in person? Do you have stats on how quickly that that first in-person date happens?
1: It really varies, um, you know, depending on the, the two people's circumstances. Maybe they were like somebody's on vacation. Like, so for example, like over the holidays, like we knew that a lot of uh, meetings actually don't end up happening for two to three weeks because a lot of people are away. Um, so it really depends. But what we do know is that speed and you know, you know know the expression like strike it while the iron is hot actually does matter. So for example, if you connect, like let's say a chat line opens because you both liked each other. If you actually say something within three hours of the connection opening, you're much more likely to get a response back. Um, or if you, the same goes, if somebody says something and then if you reply within three hours, um, it's the same case where the likelihood of the conversation actually going somewhere increases significantly. And so my advice to people is like strike it while the iron is hot. If you met up and you're chatting and if there's something interesting going on, like try to meet up right away.
0: Okay. I want to ask you a couple questions about you. Um, I think you got your MBA from Stanford. So what was the value of going to business school? What did you learn there or do there that that has helped make a difference in terms of running a company?
1: Um, You know, I think besides the actual technical knowledge that you gain, like financial modeling or how to look at industry, you know, that kind of thing, which obviously is very helpful, I think the most amount of value that that I gained from MBA is self-confidence and also the network that I could actually tap into to start doing something that I really had no idea um, what I was getting into, and so for example, a lot of people that I, you know, I I, I mentioned that I like I raised the VC institutional money as my first um, raise. That VC was introduced to us by one of um, my sister's classmate. Um, she went to a business school as well, and a lot of our. Um, investors actually were introduced that way. So it's, it was really great having a network of uh, classmates who I could actually ask for introductions or, or they were actually working for VC themselves. So I could actually just pitch them directly. Um, also, we have a network of entrepreneurs that I could actually tap into in order to ask questions. You know, being an entrepreneur, especially a first-time entrepreneur, is uh, can be very daunting. And, you know, it's very typical for you to wake up um, and then thinking like, oh my God, I don't, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, what am I doing? Like I'm wasting time. And, and so it is, it is a place where a lot of mentorship and sharing of experiences come are really critical. And so I was very lucky enough to um, have a network that I could tap into for that kind of um, resources.
0: You mentioned your sister. Uh, so what's it like working with family very closely? You've got three sisters as co-founders? What are the fantastic or maybe potentially not quite as fantastic things about working uh-huh. that closely with family?
1: Working with my sisters um, is awesome. Like, uh, like, yeah, it has definitely has the pros and cons. The con is that we, we fight a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's gotten a lot better after a few years, but we still do. And sometimes you can get really exhausting, like, when I talk, when I have meetings with my, uh, my sister, it's like my sister, right? So um, it's hard to be very formal, and we have so much baggages of like 30-something years of uh, treating each other a certain way. So uh, sometimes she says something, and I don't like the way she says it, and then I make, like, I'm like, stop, you know. Stop saying things that way, and then she's like, "Well, you do, you you stop," <laughs> and so <laughs> that's no fun. Um, the flip side of it, which and I think this is actually the most critical when it comes to co-founder partnership, is that we have such a huge respect and complete trust for each other that we never have to doubt um, each other's intention. You know, I've heard from a lot of uh, entrepreneurs who I spoke to um, that. You know, co-founders not being able to get along and partying actually is one of the most common reasons why companies fail. Because, I mean, it's not fun anymore or they can't trust each other, like, uh, each other's intention. And so they start fighting. Um, and that's a huge distraction to the company. And, and I, I feel very lucky that I never had to actually deal with that.
0: Okay, I'm going to ask a prying question now. Have you ever online dated?
1: I have. I actually <laughs> met two of my ex-boyfriends on Coffee Meets Bagel.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, Successful. I I, I mean, so you 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 made partnerships out. So overall successful, I guess. Are you online dating now?
1: It was very successful, both uh, um, in that like we we were dating for I think it was like a year and a half each each. And I I learned so much from that relationship. It was very, very uh, significant and meaningful to me.
0: Did you mention that you were a co-founder of the company in your profile?
1: I didn't. I didn't. I didn't want that to be a distraction.
0: How did does your date How do your dates react when they find out that news?
1: So when, when your when our profile is shown, um, we tr- we don't actually share personally identifiable information, and so my name is hidden. But then when you connect, we reveal your first name. My first name is Dawoon. Dawoon. I really think there is only one down in the SF Bay area, so. When you Google my name, it's very easy to find out what I do. So typically when I showed up on a date, they already knew that I was a co-founder. And it's, it's kind of funny. Like sometimes people pretend that they didn't know, but it's obvious that they knew. Or uh, I think when they're nervous, they actually just talk about work, which uh, doesn't really make it fun for me. Uh, and some people just don't care. So it was it was a very interesting reaction.
0: Okay. Very quick. Lightning round. Are there any books or movies that have informed your management style, how you manage people?
1: Yes. I recently read Ray Dalio's Principles. Actually, I'm still reading it. And I was really inspired by the fact that he wrote all the principles down, the principles in which he basically show up in work and family. And so I actually started writing my own principles, uh, which I'm very excited to share with my team. Excellent. Yeah. Uh,
0: What mistake have you made that you've learned the most from?
1: Oh, well, the... One mistake that I made uh, with one of our product development, and um, re- really, I it's like one of those mistakes that I should have known bear- better. When you're developing a feature, you really need to deploy quickly and experiment and learn and iterate, um, which is, now it's become such a cliche, but it's so important.
0: Last question. If I fired you from Coffee Meets Bagel Tomorrow and you could never do anything at all related <laughs> to this, again, you couldn't start a company or be an executive what would you do with your life instead?
1: Oh, wow. That's a very interesting question and it's something that I haven't thought about because I right now I just really can't um, see myself doing anything else but Coffee Meets Bagel. Um, I would just, I would be a bagel bond. Like, just tra- <laughs> traveling everywhere and any, any, anywhere, yeah.
0: Dawoon Kang, co-CEO and co-founder of Coffee Meets Bagel, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That's our show. Who Runs That is produced by Cameron Drews. T.J. Raphael is the senior producer for Slate Podcasts. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. If you like our show, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at Slate.com. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening.